Last week we we were studying Hebrews 11, we were on verse 19, and then we got into a discussion about the, the gospel and gospel preaching, and some, uh, some people made some very good comments about that and why the gospel is so important. But now we are into Hebrews 11 and verse 20. It says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. <clears throat> One of the... Uh, Interesting things about the patriarchal stories in Genesis, and as you know, if you've been coming here for a while, I've been preaching through Genesis when I'm in the Old Testament, and it's been a very enlightening time to learn Genesis. But you know what's interesting is that the things these patriarchs said became accurate descriptions of the future history of these different people. And what they said, whether it was Ishmael or uh, about Ishmael or Isaac or Esau or then the twelve tribes. Very accurate. The uh, blessing of Jacob on the twelve tribes in Genesis 49. These things accurately depicted what literally happened many, many centuries later. And we might wonder why, how is it that the patriarchs had that kind of ability to just say, well, this is the way it's going to be, and then it became that way. Well, it's only true because of God's providence that God was there in those words because in their words, God's purposes were coming to pass. Now, we've got a really good look at that with um, um, Jacob and Esau because the intent of the patriarch was to bless Esau, right? Isaac really intended he wanted to bless Esau. But God had spoken to their mother before they were born and said the elder would serve the younger. And God's purpose came to pass in spite of the intrigue and the deception and all those things that happened. God still ultimately did what he wanted, which was that Jacob would be the one through whom the lineage would come and the line of promise would come. So... Uh, it, the, these patriarchal stories give us a, an insight into the intersection between God's eternal purposes and human actions on the face of the earth. And what we learn from these is that those two are not incompatible. That God is able to bring to pass his sovereign de- decrees from all eternity, but yet humans are fr- freely making their choices and, and, and making statements and blessing and doing things on the face of the earth. And this position that I'm telling you about is called compatibilism in theology. And and that doctrine says that God's sovereign oversight, God's sovereign will and purpose, and human freedom are compatible. You don't have to choose one over against the other, that they're both true. So... By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. Now, this incident is found in Genesis chapter 27, starting with verse 27. So let me read that to you. Genesis 27. So he came close and kissed him, and when he had smelled the smell of the garments, he blessed him and said, now remember, this is the wrong one. (laughs) The right one from God's perspective, the wrong one from Isaac's perspective. See the smell of my son. It is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. Now may God give you the dew of the heaven, of heaven and the fatness of the earth and an abundance of grain and new wine. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. 
Be master of your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be those who curse you, and blessed be those who bless you. Now, where did we hear that before? Yeah, God said that to Abraham in Genesis 12 and verse 3. So Moses is indicating, or by writing this account, that this Abrahamic blessing now is uh, continued on only through his son, through grandson Jacob. And it came about as soon as Isaac had finished blessing. Jacob and Jacob had hardly gone out from the presence of Isaac his father that Esau his brother came in from hunting. And then he made savory food and brought it to his father. And then it says in verse 32, I am your firstborn son Esau. Then Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was with them that hunted game and brought it to me so that I ate all of before you came and blessed him? And when Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me also. Well, you know what happened. I preached on this a while back. So uh, here it says in in, uh, Hebrews that by faith Isaac did this. Now it's kind of hard to understand what he means by that. Now it's hard for us reading back and reading that account. Well, where was the faith? Because he didn't even know he was blessing Jacob. So where was his faith? Well, I think the faith is indicated by the mention of uh, the Abrahamic promise. Isaac believed that the promise God gave to Abraham was true. He believed God's word to Abraham, his father. And in, in reciting that in the blessing, even though he was unwittingly blessing Jacob rather than Esau, because God wanted him to, um, he is indicating that he believed that the promise that God gave Abraham was not only true, but that it would be transferred from generation to generation, uh, according to God's promise of descendants to Abraham. And we know that this blessing is still true today, that uh, God still has a purpose for the descendants of Abraham to bless the families. Yes, Keith. So much that he was willing to speak it out, and, and it was true in his heart what he was saying. It wasn't some feeling that he had, some premonition or something that he had faith in. No, he 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 knew that God had told these words to Abraham, his father, and Abraham undoubtedly told Isaac. And last week we were we were talking about how um, by faith Isaac had brought, or um, Abraham brought his son Isaac up to sacrifice him. Now, um, let's look at verse 21. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Now we're moving forward to yet another generation. And now Jacob is the patriarch, the blessed one. And he's blessing here the sons of Joseph. Now, one of the questions is, why would he be blessing the son? Why talk about the blessing of the sons of Joseph here when the chapter 49, the blessing of the 12 tribes, would seem to be a more significant event. But yet, the one that's mentioned is the one in Genesis 20, 20, or 48. So I consulted my 
favorite commentary on Hebrews, which is the one by William Lane. And he says this about that. The writer's primary interest, however, is in the response of faith in the promises on the part of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the incident reported in Genesis 48 is highly informative in that regard. As in the case of the blessing of Jacob and Esau introduced in verse 20, the normal order of genealogical descent was versed in the blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh. Jacob's right hand rested in blessing upon the head of Ephraim, the younger son, while his left hand was placed on the head of Manasseh, the firstborn. When Joseph attempted to correct what he perceived as a serious mistake, Jacob resisted in faith, preferring Ephraim before Manasseh. Jacob's faith consisted in the conviction that God's designs were invincible and that the promise were being worked out under God's care. So let's read the incident and see if we can see that. Genesis 48, 12 through 20. Well, back in verse 5 it says, And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. So let's go down now to verse 8. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, Who are these? And Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given, given me here. So he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were so dim from age that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them close to him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has left me to see your children as well. And Joseph took them from his knees and bowed with his face to the ground. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right, and brought them close to him. But Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his hands, although Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. May my name live on in them. And in the names of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and may they grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's hand, it had a discipline, and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's to Manasseh's. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, this is the one firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But the father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall become a people, and he shall be great. However, his younger brothers shall be greater than he, and his descendants will become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them. That day, saying, By you, Israel shall pronounce blessings, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. And he put Ephraim before Manasseh. So interesting. Keith. But don't you think that Isaac could have been blessing Jacob in faith because of the words that God had spoken to his wife? If he knew them. I know, but but the but he didn't really want to do it. Is the thing that's interesting about it. It, it, it he was deceived into doing it. It's, I think it's, it's, it's likely that he knew the words, but it's also really clear from the text that he was uh, 
really shocked at the, at the situation. Trump. Yeah. It wasn't something, yeah, you see that was, it wasn't his intent. And so what's being illustrated is the primacy of God's purpose being worked out in spite of what humans may or may not do. Now, in this passage I just read, you see the faith there, though? Why would this be illustrative of, of by faith he blessed them? Because look at what he said. The God who, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who had been my shepherd. So he's recounting what God said, what God did, and so his faith was in God who had spoken, God who had acted in history, and God who had promised descendants, and that this family, this this lineage from Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob would be a multitude of descendants. So you can see his faith in those words that he spoke there. And so that's why the author of Hebrews chose that incident to illustrate faith. So what are we learning about faith in Hebrews chapter 11? Well, it started out by faith is the evidence of things not seen. So in the case of the patriarchs, what was not seen? This multitude of descendants. When they were alive, they didn't have a multitude of descendants greater than the stars of the sky or the sands of the sea. Uh, the f- promised seed that in the f- seed of Abraham would all the families of the earth be blessed. That was unseen to the patriarchs because it didn't, hadn't happened yet. It was yet future. So what, what this faith was, was a belief in the objective promises of God that had been given in the lack of current evidence on the face of the earth that these things would indeed happen in the future. Yeah, in spite of us. They, they stumbled many ways. But yet God's purposes went forward. I got on a phone call, uh, or actually Karen took the call, and then I decided to take it. But um, a lady called and talked to Karen and says, Does your pastor hear from God? <laughs> and so uh, Karen came up and said, <laughs> How are you going to answer that? So Karen, Karen came up and said, well, this is what she's asking. You want to take the call? I said, sure, because I look, I always look at a chance to, to teach. I love to teach and I love to lead people to the gospel. So I took the call and she says, well, I heard you on the radio and I want to know if you hear from God. I said, sure, I do. I read the Bible every day. She goes, no, I don't mean that. She says, I, I mean, do you really hear from God? Do you know God's voice? I said, well, what do you mean? She says, well, it says in the Bible, my sheep hear my voice. So do you hear God's voice? I said, uh, you don't understand the Bible. So I went back to John 10 and explained the gospel to her, where uh, the Pharisees were claiming to speak to God, and Jesus claimed to be God's voice on the face of the earth, God the Son. And some people were listening to the Pharisees and others were coming to Jesus. And, the, and so what Jesus was saying is God gave my, the Father gave me sheep. The ones that he gave me hear me, meaning they respond to the gospel, and they come to me. And, and, I, and, I, and I become their shepherd. It's not saying that at some future point, people that are Jesus's will get special revelations or hear voices in their head that they know to be the voice of God. It means they respond to the gospel. She goes, well, I don't think, well, she didn't like my explanation. She said, well, what about Hebrews 11.1? 1? So she said, brought that up. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. I said, oh, I believe that very much so. 
There are a lot of. I believe that everything God says in His Word is true. I believe there's going to be future judgment. I believe there's going to be a rapture. I believe all of the things God said in there. Well, no, she she says, what about what about now? And I said, well, what do you mean? She says, well, let me give you an illustration. We have a business, and it was doing like sixty-five thousand dollar a month business, and we wanted five hundred thousand a month. So we spoke the word, claimed it, and believed it, and now we have five hundred thousand a month for our business. That's what I mean. And I said, um, well, how do you know that, uh, that that's even necessarily God's will? So I read, I took her to James 3 and said, uh, I said to her about the businessman, go now you who say, well, let's go here and there for a city and we're going to make a great profit and come back in a year. How do you know? Your life is like a little vapor. Uh, and after a little while it passes away, you should see if the Lord's wills. I don't know. If I had a business, I wouldn't know that it was God's will that I have a half a million a month. How do I know that God would rather have me rich than poor? I don't know that. I'm presuming. This, this, so I try to tell her that. She goes, well, I don't think you, you, I don't think you really hear from God. <laughs> and then so that we, so she, I said, well, you know, she says, you need to, you need to learn in Mark 11:23. whoever says to this mountain, and you'll have whatever you say. I said, oh, well, it sounds like Kenneth Hagin. Oh, yeah, she says, Kenneth Hagin's great. So then we know, you know, where we were coming from. And, and what was going on is in that uh, stream of theology, they make a distinction between the logos and the ramos, rhema. Logos, they say, is God's word like this, which is static. And rhema would be a word that's a new revelation. Infuses it, right? Right. And then, so if you're trying to get a rhema word out of here, what you would be doing is taking verses out of context and getting getting some subjectively infused revelation about what the means. Yeah. In other words, rather than the Bible being God's word. The Bible is only potentially becomes God's word if it gets infused by some new meaning by the Holy Spirit. Now, what this is very serious error, by the way, uh, because it's a denial of the authority of Scripture. And these rhema words aren't authoritative, and we don't even know necessarily whether they're from God. So, I sent you that one prophecy that an elder of the church I was at before sent an email to a man that had raised a question at a church body meeting, and on the email, it says, Rhema, colon, and it goes speaking for God in the first person, cursing him, telling him he'll never come to the promised land, telling him God will never bless him because he's opposing God to his will. Yeah, that, I saw that email. Yeah, so the Rhema word was this prophet cursing a church member for disagreeing with the, with the church. <laughs> I, yeah, I get some of those too every once in a while. But uh, uh, now, I actually I tried to that the lady wasn't that belligerent. I said, you know, I believed what you believe back in 1972 and 73. I read Kenneth Hagin stuff before anybody heard of him, and I used to listen to his tapes. I had a tape called "How to Write Your Own Ticket with God," and. Um, and I said, back when I heard Kenneth Hagin on the radio in the very early 70s, he used to tell, talk all the time about E.W. Kenyon and his Bible studies. Later, Kenyon went, Hagin quit talking about Kenyon and claimed he got all these things by personal revelation. And there's a guy named Dan McConnell that wrote a book that exposed the, the, the fact that Hagin plagiarized Kenyon 
and that are, and that you can prove just he had he has in his book just the the documents. Here's Kenyon, here's Hagen, here's Kenyon, here's Hagen, and he talked to Kenyon's descendants who are upset that Hagen plagiarized Kenyon. Now Kenyon's a heretic. Kenyon was the one that taught that Jesus lost his divinity when he died on the cross and went to hell as nothing more than a man, no different than you and I, and that as a man had to wrestle Satan in order to try to get the kingdom back and to get. Yeah, fought his way out. Now, that all came from, Ken, uh, Hagen didn't dream that up. It came from E.W. Kenyon, who had been taught by this Theophos, Theo, Theophos, Theo, yeah, I'm thinking of Theophosics. That's a different heresy. Theosophical society it would be God's wisdom. The same stream of theology that Mary Baker, Eddie, Eddie and the Mind Science came from. Dan McConnell wrote a book, A Different Gospel, that, but she said, oh, I didn't know about that. I said, well, here, and I went to Amazon.com, and they still, they've republished that book. You can still get it. And so she was going to buy the book and get it. So it was a worthwhile phone call, even though I don't, she found out I don't hear from God. <laughs> yes, yeah, so Brad. Yes. Right. Between Rhema and Logos. Right. And yeah, the soul, spirit, and body, there's another aspect to it, and that is uh, that the human spirit is supposed to have priority over any other part of your anatomy. So the, the soul is sort of caught in a trap between the body and the spirit. And if the soul... Uh, follow sense perception. Remember, they used to talk about that. Then that's unbelief. But if the soul listens to the spirit, meaning your own spirit, because your own spirit is supposedly already perfected, then your soul will be following God rather than sense perception, and you'll have a higher order of spirituality. Um, you know, this I should write about this. I don't think I've ever wrote an article about this whole movement in all these years because it's still out there. Yes. I think a lot of here has to do with motive, though. And, uh, so many of these errors are, are, are motivated by uh, worldly desires. And these desires are deceitful. Uh, in fact, the Bible talks about our, our human desires deceiving us all of that. And when this person talked about you know, hearing from God Increasing the business from 50,000 to 500,000. That was a worldly desire that was being fulfilled. And she packaged it in some spiritual uh, wrapping. Uh, and I think a, a lot of these ministries are, are worldly desires. In other words, anything that, that brings prominence to the person himself, where the person is the focus. Uh, or what the person gets as the focus of the worship is wrong. And, and the thing is, you know, it says, turn your eyes toward Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Mm-hmm. We have to be concentrating on him mm-hmm. because it's him that does the work in us. It's not something we conjure up or we, we can do and put this in our credit basket. You know, <laughs> look what I did. Look who I am. Look uh, how far I've come. And I, and I really think, you know, if you test, it says test the spirits, but if you, when you listen to this kind of stuff, when you can see, uh, you know, and I think when you apply it 
against the Bible, you'll see the, the disparities uh, that will show that there's worldly motives behind these writings. Right. It, ta- it takes the, the intent of the scripture, which is to lead us to Christ and to put our hope in, in him for eternity and puts it focus on this world and what we can do here. And that's exactly how uh, such teachings misconstrue faith. In Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith being the evidence of things not seen. I told her, I said, let me, let me tell you what those things not seen are. It's, it's the heavenly sanctuary. It's the blood that was poured out once for all. It's Jesus at the right hand of God interceding for us. It's the high priesthood that's not a current one that you can go physically watch. And uh, that's in the context what Hebrews is about. Not about unseen thing would be my future salary being much higher than it is now. Uh, th- that's You can't get that out of Hebrews 11. Yes? I think that when the motives are really very material, I want to double my pay or I want to do something, you know, double my house, double my whatever, that's more, that's easier to see. I think when you're talking about pointing towards Jesus, when I'm truly zealous and enthusiastic and committed to a different Jesus, say a Dalai Lama type guy who doesn't have a checkbook, he doesn't have a house, but he's committed to a philosophy of a different Jesus such that I'm willing to sacrifice everything I have to bring that different pieces out, that's also a, a lust, a bad lust, or a, sure. the worldly packaging is much, much more difficult to see because all that I'm proclaiming you can have in this different Jesus is noble. You can have selflessness, you can have love, you can have compassion, you can have all these things. And we're, we're for selflessness, love, compassion, that's a good Christian virtues. But you accomplish it through a different through human works, sir. And you accomplish it now by doing this. So it also is a it's just as it's yeah. It would be because you don't sense the malice. That's true. It, uh, the the health and wealth gospel is crass enough to at least on the surface to some people to be false. But you can um, offer another version of of spirituality where people sell all they have, take an oath of celibacy, an oath of poverty, and an oath of obedience. And, and are very nice people and go live in a monastery and try to get closer to God that way. But it's still unbelief because whether the human works is trying to make more money or the human works is trying to uh, become spiritual through severe treatment of the body, that's mentioned in Colossians 2, it's still focusing not on faith in the finished work of Christ. And Luther has a fantastic essay on called Against Monastic, no, against religious oaths or something like that. I read that entire thing. Yeah, against monastic vows. And his reasoning was just fabulous, and it's going to be in one of the chapters of my book. I quoted Luther to refute these vows that people are taking today. But, so that sounds good too, but it's still not faith. You're, if you're saying, I vow to live in poverty the rest of my life and celibacy and obedience to some religious order, uh, that's not faith. That's works. Yes. Second uh, Corinthians says, uh, "For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought uh, to make it obedient to Christ." So that. 
this this battle we're in, this war we wage, is against the suppression of the knowledge of God. So it, it's it's almost a knowledge battle. And I think what Keith is saying is that anything that gets us off the truth uh, is an enemy. And whether it's this pietism or asceticism or whatever you want to call it, uh, materialism, it gets us away from the knowledge of God. And the world is called wicked because it tries to suppress that knowledge. Hmm. Amen. Yeah, amen. And what the Bible does is God revealing himself. And so the battle is against what, what the world wants to suppress, which is what God said about himself. Mm-hmm. And the world wants us to believe anything else. Right. Satan is very open-minded. <laughs> Satan has plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and if you need another one, he'll invent that. God has one plan, and that's salvation through Christ, who came once for all, died for sins, and bodily ascended into heaven. And, uh, yeah, you're right. Anything. The battle is about truth. Jesus said, you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And then they started arguing with him about 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 whether they even needed such a thing. And then pretty soon he says, you're of your father the devil, who is a liar from the beginning. And whenever he speaks the lie, definite article in the Greek, he speaks out of his own nature. Satan is the liar. He tries to suppress it. Yes? Um, yeah, but, but well, when all of you were saying, because in my, in my old church, you know, you become the enemy because you do believe in the truth. And even, you know, well, you should believe you're going to have more anointing, more power. There's automatic healing and control. All these false things, and you just want to believe the truth. You want to be yeah, amen. Yeah, and then you become an enemy. Well, um, you, you're going to find comfort here because there's about <laughs> 40 people that had the same experience in 40 different churches. And we've agreed to just open the scripture and together read it and learn it. And people are free to ask questions. And if I say anything that doesn't line up, then I want to be corrected. Because, you, you, you bet. You know, I wouldn't get by with anything here. And I don't want to. Because why put... See, if we believe what the Bible says about self, that it's inerrant and inspired by the Holy Spirit, then believing that leads to certain conclusions, in my opinion. And that is that the more clear and accurately we proclaim the Bible so that people can understand the original intent of the author, the Holy Spirit writing through, you know, inspired human authors, the more powerful the Holy Spirit will be working. So if people are talking about anointing and a work of the Holy Spirit, then what they'd be doing is studying the Bible to make sure they get it right. Nothing can be more powerful and uh, and part of this failure is a failure of faith because we don't believe that God will do what he said he would do. That if I preach the gospel accurately and biblically, that God will use it to save the lost. Well, no, uh, they don't want to hear that. I don't care what they want to hear. I just, want to, I just care what God said. Maybe the lost want to hear that everybody goes to heaven. In fact, they do want to hear that. Yeah, but what's, but what, well, telling people everybody goes to heaven is, it may be comforting to the carnal mind, but it's damning because if you believe that, you'll never repent. So the truth is the truth is the truth. And, and, um, the conclusion of this book that we're
praying that we find a uh, help to get published, um, ends in, in the conclusion with a powerful work of the Holy Spirit. That we don't we believe that if we proclaim the Word of God faithfully and accurately, applying the meaning, giving valid implications, that's the preacher's job uh, to bring the implications to bear. Here's what it says. Here's what it means. Now, what does it imply to us? What does God want us to do? And how is God going to change our lives? That if we really believe the Holy Spirit inspired the Bible, why would we give anything less? And that taking this Bible and mistranslating it in some perversion called the message is not going to facilitate a work of the Holy Spirit. Because now the words are no longer God's words. They're man's words. Because they've been changed. The meaning's been changed. So, anyhow, that's the word, the very words of God. Now here, uh, we're talking about faith here. What, what kind of faith did these patriarchs have that is exemplary in, in Hebrews 11? They believed the very words of God. They believed that God really said, in thy seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. They really believed that God chose Abraham. They really believed that God promised the Canaan to Abraham and his descendants. They really believed that there was this coming seed of Abraham through whom the families of the earth would be blessed, that is, Messiah. So it can even be said that they believed in Christ, whom they hadn't yet really seen. Because then it says that they believed in Christ before, in a, in a typological sense. Uh, back to Lane here, um, he points out another thing. Joseph promised, uh, excuse me, when Jacob recognized that he would soon die, he made Joseph promise that he would not bury his father in Egypt, but in the cave Abraham had purchased from Ephron the Hittite in Canaan. Burial in Canaan was an expression of faith in the promise of possession of the land. Jacob's final act of worship, leaning on the top staff, was characteristic for one who lived his life as a stranger and a sojourner. Notice it says when he died, he worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. Now, you may wonder, well, it doesn't really say that in, in our Bible. Well, the, the author of Hebrews quotes literally from the Septuagint, the Greek Bible, was the one that he was using. And, on, and, and uh, uh, let me read to you about that. The variation in translation arose from the interpretation of the unpointed Hebrew text. The radicals could be read mata, staff, or mita, bed. Although the latter translation is supported by so-and-so, it is clear that the writer read his Bible in Greek and carefully selected the quotation for his description of Jacob as a sojourner, that's what the staff signified, who, in the face of death, lays claim to the future through the exercise of faith and the realization of the promises of God. There. Okay, I hope that made sense. But a number of times in the New Testament, when there's a difference between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint, the New Testament follows the Septuagint. Not to imply that the Septuagint is the inspired text, but it was the Bible they used. If you're writing in Greek, and you have a Greek Bible, plus, I've told you before, the Jews thought the Septuagint was inspired because they had a myth about it, so they would readily accept it. Yes? Well, Paul quotes Euripides, I think, in one of his texts. That doesn't mean Euripides spoke for God, but those particular words in this context... Speaking through Paul, right. And so these become inspired because they're in the New Testament. So uh, hopefully, I, I, I'm telling you these things that I would like us to learn. And 
Uh, so don't get confused later if somebody tries to use this as evidence that the Bible's not inspired because it doesn't serve as evidence the Bible's not inspired. So the writer of Hebrews follows the Septuagint. Now, if I was writing in English, let's say I knew two languages and I'm writing an article in English. I only, well, I don't really know two languages. I know Greek enough to read it and look it up, but I couldn't speak it to anybody. And I couldn't write in it either. But nevertheless, if I did know two languages and I was writing in English, what Bible would I use? The English Bible, because it's already the work's already done. Well, that's exactly what the writers of the New Testament did. They used the Greek Bible because that's the one they had, and they quoted from it. They didn't go back and make their own translation from the Masoretic text, which they, if they knew Hebrew well enough, ancient Hebrew, they could have done. But they didn't. All right? So, we have a reversed order here. It's just like in the account with Isaac blessing Esau, Jacob and Esau. And the reverse order happened in spite of the protest of Joseph. Now, the future uh, was such that Ephraim would be the blessed one and not Manasseh, the prominent one, not Manasseh. Okay? Why? Because that's how God intended to work. That's why. God, God has his prerogatives. He's God. Let's go to verse 22. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. Maybe somebody, could you look up uh, uh, Genesis 47, 28 to 31, uh, Brian? 47, what? 28 to 31. By the way, while he's looking that up, somebody, last week I was, oh boy, it's hot here, sorry. Overmodulating. Um, Last week I was mentioning John MacArthur's CD about Catholicism that was so outstanding. It was absolutely fabulous. Well, then everybody was calling me, which one is it? How do you get it? Well, I got it for free because I sent John MacArthur some money six weeks ago. And it was his free offer. Um, and so Scott Kimball did some research. Or Sherry did. Okay, Sherry Kimball wanted to get this CD, and so she did some research and called and found out that that it's a different title now. The one that you have to pay for, pay for has a different title. It says it's called the Pope and the Papacy, Lesson 90-291. The Pope and the Papacy, Lesson 90-291. John MacArthur. Yeah, I'll put this up on the board over there. And I, that is, you haven't heard anything like this. I promise you, you haven't heard anything like this. I was in awe of this message. I don't know how anybody could be so bold and courageous as MacArthur is, but God bless him. I guarantee you, he's not going to be the next Billy Graham. <laughs> no. <laughs> but... uh if a bunch of people listen to that, maybe we have a little discussion of it here sometime. You know, call maybe if you pay the six bucks, you get it quicker because it took six weeks for me to get the free one. Yeah, and you got it cheaper because I sent him ten bucks. <laughs> <laughs> and it was worth every penny. Okay, you got uh, Genesis uh, forty. Uh, excuse me, what is it? Forty-seven, twenty-eight to thirty-one, Brian. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So Jacob reached the age of 147 years. 
When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hands under my thigh and promise to deal loyally and faithfully with me. Do not bury me, I beg of you, in Egypt. But let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And Joseph said, I will do as you have directed. Then Jacob said, Swear to me that you will do it. And he swore to him. And Israel bowed himself upon the head of the bed. Right. So there it says the head of the bed, but in the Septuagint it said on his staff. Now, he made sure that he wasn't buried in Egypt. And that was an expression of faith in the promise that God would give the land to his descendants. (laughs) Are you ringing? (laughs) I remember when nobody had those things. Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, did Did you find it? As soon as you find it, Keith, you can read it. Okay, we had the wrong one, but it was a good one. Thank you, Brian. We like that. It shows that the same faith is going down through the patriarchs. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take you and bring you up in this land, the land that you promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and was fallen in place in the coffin of Egypt. Let me read one more passage, because this is a passage in Genesis 15 that they're both referring to. Okay. God said to Abraham, Genesis 15, 13, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in the land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. So, so they believed that, that word. Right. So they believed. It had, so that's faith, in, according to Hebrews. It's faith in the objective promises of God. Now, if you turn, turn it around, twist it around, and, and try to make it seem that God promised something he didn't promise, you end up with trouble. You end up with faith in something less than what God has said. So... Uh, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. So the more accurately we preach the gospel and teach the word of God, the more we believe God will use his means of grace to bring faith into our hearts and minds. And, and, and the more God does that, the more we will be able to mature, the more we'll be able to grow in the grace and knowledge of God, the more we'll be able to withstand in the evil day, and to deal with the troubles of life and the afflictions and the things that we all have to deal with because we know the truth. And the truth is a rock-solid foundation. And nothing is more important. And that's why it's such a tragedy that the, the truth of the Word is being removed from evangelical churches. I, I met with Ryan yesterday. Um, he had, wanted to go over an outline of a book that he's going to write on the means of grace. And we were talking about his outline and, and where he wants to go with it. And I, I think it's going to be a very good project. And we were talking about this, that um, the means of grace are, are, are the Word of God, baptism, prayer, and the Lord's Supper. And the, the reason that they're neglected 
is because people don't believe, it's too mundane. It's, it's like naming the, the leper who's going to go away because of washing in the Jordan. Why should I follow what God said? I'll just go do it my own way. The things that God's provided for us, He will use graciously to change our lives. It may seem mundane. Why should we gather week after week and open the Bible and study it like this? When we could be doing something 40 days of purpose. <laughs> we could be having fun. We could be, we could be, be like everybody else. Well, because God didn't tell us that He would bless 40 days of purpose. But He did tell us He would bless His Word. And faith doesn't come from the human wisdom. Faith comes by the Word of Christ. So that's why we would do this. Now, by faith, Joseph makes mention of the Exodus. Why? Because he believed what God said. Objectively, in history, the words of God that were given to Abraham. And God did this. God brought them back out with many possessions hundreds of years later out of Egypt and through Moses. And that's the next person that we're going to study. But I had a couple of other passages. Linda, could you look up Exodus 13, 19? Uh, Linda Lewis, that is, and Linda, the next Linda here. <laughs> Could you look up Joshua twenty four thirty two? Okay, um, Exodus thirteen nineteen. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for he had placed the children of Israel under Solomon, saying, "God will surely visit you, and you shall carry out my bones from here with you." So Moses, now just look at how they hung on to the Word of God, okay? Because that was 400 years later, and Moses was still believing what God had said to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Joseph. And he, and he did it. He did what Joseph asked hundreds of years later and brought his bones back out. Okay, then we have um, Joshua 24:32. Now they buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem, in the piece of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of the Amorite, the father of Shechem, for one hundred pieces of money. And they became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. So they did, they did bury Joseph there at that place in Shechem. So they preserved those promises, and literally, it's amazing that they hung on to, after those 40 years of wandering and everybody dying, they still believed what God had said, and they hung on to it, and they obeyed. Faith comes by the Word of God. Genuine faith produces obedience. Because if you don't believe, you don't see any good reason to obey. You don't believe that God spoke. Why, why, why hang on to these bones? Who's going to know the difference? Joseph's dead, right? You could just leave them in Egypt. But they, they did this because they believed. Moses believed by faith. Okay, so then that brings us to the story. We can at least introduce this um, story of Moses here. This is my favorite, I have to admit, my favorite section in Hebrews 11 is the story of Moses. Because, uh, and let me just read how it's recounted here and the point that's made by the author of Hebrews. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, 
greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. Now, not going any further, just taking those three verses. Isn't that amazing that Moses saw this as the reproach of Christ? How? Right. Because he believed the seed promise. In thy seed, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, will lead to the blessing of the families of the earth, to a Messiah. So Abraham had, or Moses had, had messianic faith. And we know that from his writings. Because in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said that God would raise up another prophet like unto him. And when he does, listen to him. And it says in John 5 and elsewhere, Jesus is that prophet who was predicted by Moses. So Moses believed in Christ. And he believed that the reproach... I think that this would make a fantastic sermon. I may have maybe 10 or 20 years ago, I probably preached this sermon. But um, it would make a fantastic sermon. Because in a, in a sense, prototypically... Moses is showing what the Christian life is all about. Any one of us, if we're going to be a Christian, is going to have to have the kind of faith that Moses had. To consider the reproaches of Christ greater treasure than the treasures of Egypt. And if we're going to believe on Jesus Christ and turn to him, we will suffer the reproach of the world. And in Moses' case, in Moses' case, I think you have such a beautiful illustration because it's so stark. Most of us, it's not quite as big of a contrast. But the contrast from Moses was unbelievable. What does it mean to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter? He could have just kept his mouth shut. Next week we'll read the story. I'll go back in there. We'll read about the ark and the, what happened. And, um, I don't assume anymore that everybody knows all the Bible stories. And so people come to church to learn. So I'm going to go back and tell you the Bible story. I want to tell you about that, about Moses' birth and about how he was preserved and how he's put in the ark and put in the Nile. Because a lot of people are, are new Christians and maybe they didn't grow up in Sunday school. But think about being called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Egypt was the greatest empire at that time in history. Egypt was the wealthiest nation at that time. And in the way they uh, configured their government, being Pharaoh was the most powerful position in the world. Being being Pharaoh, or being in a lineage to Pharaoh, meant unbelievable wealth, unbelievable privilege, and the greatest uh, imaginable luxury, honor, prestige, whatever anybody could ever, ever dream of having. Pharaoh was the ultimate position. And here, Moses refuses to become the son of Pharaoh's daughter, meaning a possible, having a possible lineage to the throne. And rather than choosing that, he chose to endure affliction with the people of God, meaning he's going to be one of these lowly Jewish slaves building the pyramids. And not only did he choose to not... In, Enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, which goes on here in this sermon in Hebrews 11. But he ended up exiled for 40 years. 
even from his own Jewish people. And then when he finally, in this glorious moment of the Exodus, that in faith they sacrificed, they obeyed, they did the Passover, they put the blood on the doorposts and the, and the judgment passed over them and God brought them out miraculously. Then, then when Moses gets out into the wilderness, his own people turn against him. They grumble, they don't like him. They say, Moses, why'd you do this to us? We, we love that food in Egypt, it was so good. This manna is hard. And uh, so Moses, rather than enjoying the prestige and power and, and, and pleasure of being the son of Pharaoh's daughter, chooses to spend his whole life being rejected even by his own people for the most part. And then ends up not even going into the promised land. Now Moses was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, we don't know what they were talking about. But how many of you think Moses has regrets now? No. Moses doesn't have any regrets. Even though during his lifetime, you would assume that it was a pretty tough life that he had to live compared to what it could have been. Now, faith is the evidence of things not seen. And the reason it's necessary is because if we will, like Moses, consider Christ greater than the riches of Egypt, this world, we'll have to be walking by faith. Because on the surface, it doesn't look like we have such a good deal. A lot of times we lose our friends, we lose our family. Um, this life isn't necessarily more pleasant because you're a Christian. Um, and we're at odds with the world. And not only that, once you become a Christian, now you see the world as a place of temptation and evil. And so you have a conflict trying to resist it because the flesh delights it. So there, there's a certain degree of suffering that comes with every a person who becomes a Christian. Yes, Mike. Would you uh, say that Moses was a Uh, was Moses a type of Christ? Uh, there's parts of the story that is. I don't know if he, his person is, but certainly the ark is. You have the ark that, in which Noah was saved. And then you have an ark in which Moses is saved. And then you have an ark of the covenant. And, and then the ark of the covenant is a type of Christ. But he was rejected by his people, went into exile for four years, comes back, and then leads them to the land. That's a good point. Uh, William Lane, whose commentary I like about Hebrews, has a fantastic commentary on Mark. And he makes that point that the, the Gospel of Mark sees Jesus at, through, the, through the story of Moses. Jesus goes into the wilderness in Mark, and, and, and God meets his people there, just like Moses took the people. So there is, there is some typology, yes. Even the concept of... In this case, he refused to be called the seed of Pharaoh's daughter. Yeah. And you can look at it from the seed promise and wanted to be the seed part of the people of, of, of Israel. So there's that case. He's, he's, he's rejecting the seed of Pharaoh. the kings of the earth yeah. in, in accepting the one that seed of promise. Uh, and Linda? You know, I just asked Kathy, how did Moses know he was a Hebrew? I think that's his mother probably told him. It doesn't really say. If his mother took him back to the sisters, said, do you want a nurse? 
Yeah, he ended up, see, he ended up uh, providentially being nursed by his own mother. Well, that's a good question. Like I, I just told Kathy, I know how he found out in the movie with Charles. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that had to be. Linda, could Charles, Charles Heston be wrong? <laughs> Would Cecil B. DeMille lead us astray? Let's think about that one. Next week, our discussion is going to be about the story of Moses. And so you can do some homework. Go back and read the story in Exodus. And we'll, we'll have a discussion. Uh, I don't know if it actually says how he felt, but I think the implication would be his mother would have known. But uh, read this. I don't know. That's a very good question. And uh, so... Think about the implications of the Moses narrative and the uh, Orion. Um, relating to how Moses is related to Christ, there's really a, a big issue when it comes to Deuteronomy and this whole proclamation of a coming prophet like Moses, but greater than Moses. Yeah, Deuteronomy 18. And so you, you have that, the lesser to the greater. Here. Right. Whereas, when you, and you, you find a lot of that stuff in the Gospels. That, you know, John 1. Yeah. Right. You had full of grace and truth, and that's how Moses met God, who is loving kindness and truth. And in Hebrews, too, there was the Moses' house and then Christ's house earlier in Hebrews. Yeah, that's good. Good point, Mike. There's typology there. Uh, we've gone over a little bit here.